On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 106, Mike Cross is Undercover Professor. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. The headline in the Chronicle article said, this professor enrolled as an undercover student and talks about a chemistry professor at the Northern Essex Community College in Massachusetts and this empathy that Mike Cross was able to gain by taking on a role of student in addition to being a father of three kids and being a professor himself. And I am just so excited to be able to get to follow up with him today and discover a little bit more about what he discovered when becoming a student. Mike, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. Good <laughs> to be here. I'm so glad you could join me uh, to, for today's conversation. And I'm, I'm first off wondering, what was it that was the impetus to you deciding to take on the role of student? Well, um, every fall, or actually at the end of every spring, we have a big kind of awards honor ceremony for all the students that are receiving awards and so forth. And, you know, I go every year and I was sitting there um, you know, clapping for people. And I was thinking how great it was because, you know, as some of my students were walking across the stage, I'd gotten to know a few of them really well and knew how much they were going through, you know, with jobs and you know, family and, you know, so many things. And I was thinking, that's pretty incredible that they're able to, to juggle all of that on top of, you know, getting honors awards and so forth. And I was trying to think, you know, when I was a student, it was a bit easier. You know, I was a, a fresh out of high school, kind of traditional student, you know, part-time job, you know, no kids and so forth. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder how I could actually understand what it's like to be a, a non-traditional student with so many things on my plate. And I thought, well, the only way to actually, you know, experience it is to experience it. And so the very next day, I got my transcript, went to the advising center, sat down and started the whole process. I mentioned to you before we started recording that one of the books I absolutely loved reading was from Rebecca Nathan. And it's all the way back in 2006. She wrote a book called My Freshman Year. And she goes undercover, if you will, and actually goes and lives in the dorms. And and I mean, serious undercover there. And oh, wow, yeah, that's definitely one of the things I remember her really being surprised by, and this is incredible to me back in 2006, was just how networked the students were in terms of even coordinating around parking spaces and, you know, I'll pick you up at such and such a place that that was a surprise. And I think, gosh, 2006, imagine today, 2016, what were some of the big surprises you had about here we are 2016, where you were really jolted around just how different it would have been for yourself as an, as maybe even a traditional undergrad going back to school. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest surprises for me was how much of kind of a, a support structure there is. Um, you know, in many cases, like it, 
you know, in Northern Essex, we, you know, we have advisors who kind of guide you through the whole process. You know, they, they're helping you to make sure that you jump through all the hoops and hurdles and so forth. And when I was a, a student at a, you know, I was at the University of Utah, which is a major research university, and there wasn't as much of that. You know, it was kind of like, well, you register for classes, you figure out what you need, and if you need help, you kind of go in and, and kind of get a little bit of you know, support. So that, that was a, a big surprise for me. Um, I was definitely surprised at how much technology has really played a major role in education nowadays compared to when, you know, the internet was just coming out when I was a student. And so to, uh, you know, to see students where, um, you know, they have a question and they literally just pull out their phone and bam, they, you know, can research things right there in class. That was, you know, pretty amazing to me. You know, obviously as a professor, I kind of see the same thing, but I didn't always know what they were doing because, as a professor, you're standing up there, you see someone pull out their phone, you think they're checking Facebook or whatever. <laughs> Whereas as a student, I'm sitting next to people, I kind of glance over and see that, you know, sometimes they are checking Facebook, but sometimes they really are using the technology to enhance their learning experience in the classroom. Were there any tools that really blew your mind in terms of having access to them as a student today and thinking, man, if only I'd had this back, back my initial undergraduate days? <laughs> I think the biggest one was EasyBib. <laughs> so I've always hated writing bibliographies or works cited. You know, I have my old handbook that I pull out as I was writing research papers, you know, now as a student. And I'm sitting there muttering to myself, like, is it a semicolon? Is it a comma? You know, is it APA, MLA, ASPCA? I have no idea. And my middle school daughter is sitting there at the table and she's like, why don't you use EasyBib? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she showed me, I'm like, wow, it does it all for you. It cites everything for you in just the right format. That was probably the biggest surprise for me. There's a lot of discussion online today about handwritten notes versus taking notes by laptop or or some other means. How did you go about taking notes and how effective did you find it? Uh, I'm still totally old school. I, I do everything by hand. You know, I show up the first day with my, my binder and my you know, notebook paper, my highlighters and everything. Um, so that's what I've always done, and that's what I continue to do. I saw that I was kind of in the minority nowadays. Um, most students would either pull out a laptop or an iPad or something. You know, I saw a lot of students that would record things, which, you know, was kind of a anomaly back when I was a student. Every now and then someone would have an actual recorder that they'd put up at the front. But now it's so much easier. They just put it on their cell phone. Also, uh, I saw, and I had seen this as a professor as well, but as, you know, especially as a student, you know, my professors would post something on the, or place something on the board, write it on the board, and you know, students would just take a snapshot of it with their phones. Tell me what a typical week looked like for you during this this process. <laughs> let's see, a typical week. Let's see. So. I'd get up. My wife and I have um, three kids, middle school to an elementary school. And so, you know, I, I'd get up, you know, get, get ready to go probably about 6 a.m., uh, drop my daughter off at middle school about 7.15, and then head off to, to work. I would typically teach an 8 a.m. class um, about three times a week, kind of Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I would, you know, teach class for an hour or two. And then I'd run off to the classes I was taking, you know, to a public speaking class or something like that. 
uh, do that for an hour, and then I would um, head back to my office, hold some office hours, answer emails. Um, I'm also department chair of natural sciences, so there's always something going on with that that I was responsible for, scheduling and so forth. And then um, we have two campuses at Northern Essex, and so I would usually in the afternoons would drive off to the Lawrence campus, which is about 15, 20 minutes away, drive over there, teach a class over there, get done about, I don't know, 5 o'clock, 5.15, and then head home to a couple hours of, you know, well, first I take the kids to karate <laughs> and then <laughs> come back home, make sure we all sit at the table, get our homework done, try to fit dinner in there somewhere. And uh, yeah, usually I wasn't able to get my homework done or my papers graded, things like that. And so after the kids are in bed about eight, then I'd usually um, spend, you know, three, four or five hours trying to, you know, fit all of that in and then get up the next day and start it all over. So <laughs> it's a little different. You know, each day has a slightly different schedule, but that's, that's a pretty good look at it. What did you use to keep track of all of your school assignments and papers that were due and things like that? I still have an old hard copy calendar, you know, that I kind of a day planner, I guess. And so I, I keep everything in there. Um, I merged my, you know, my teaching stuff or, you know, schedule with my class schedule of the classes I was taking simply because there was no other way to keep everything straight. And so if I knew I had a big research paper coming up, for instance, I would have to make sure that I, you know, knew when I had meetings and when I was teaching classes because, you know, I mean, when it came to priorities, my family came first and then, you know, my work and then my schooling, which I think is probably how many of my students feel as well. And so, yeah, that's how I tried to keep it straight. I mean, organization was really key to everything. I had to make sure that I had the syllabus, you know, printed out from, you know, before the class even began so that I could try to fit everything in because there was no other way to do it. There was the article written about you on the Chronicle, and I don't know if you've had a chance to go look at some of the comments. And by the way, I would not if you if you haven't already. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> some r- ridiculous people who clearly didn't even read the article before they start commenting like, well, he, of course it's different than when he went to school. And they're like, he said that in the interview. It's right here. Sorry, I'm, I'm going off on oh, a, yeah, little, no. <laughs> a little rant here. But there was a, a number of calls for you to write a book, and I'm wondering if you have had any thoughts about how you might like to amplify really your learning to really benefit those of us who maybe aren't going to do what you did. Yeah, um, I hadn't actually thought about it. I mean, honestly, I, I kind of just did this as my own professional development. It was just kind of a spur of the moment, like, hey, I wonder what this would be like. Uh, I didn't realize how much work it was getting into it. <laughs> I probably should have. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, everyone that I've talked to, I tried to keep it on the down low. I tried not to make a big deal of it for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, I didn't think it was anything special because this is what our students do every day. But B, I was worried that I would drop out at some point and I didn't want everyone to call me on it and say, hey, weren't you going to school and doing this? And so, yeah, now, I mean, now that you mention it, I don't know. I I don't consider myself an author, but Maybe I'll put together, you know, a couple of articles or a blog or something just to kind of detail, you know, some of the things that I learned. I mean, it's things that I'm incorporating into my own teaching. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would think that, you know, these should be 
self-evident and why wouldn't anyone think of these, but the things that I hadn't thought of. And tell me a little bit about that. What are some of the ways that you're teaching maybe changed right when you were in the middle of it and some of the things you'd like to see change in the future? So I guess kind of the, the most obvious one was that at the college, um, we have something called first year seminar, which is where all of our incoming freshmen come in and they teach time management, introduce you to the college, you know, kind of go through all the different things that we have. And so I also happened to teach a, a science, kind of science-based version of that class. And I was actually teaching it the exact same semester that I was um, taking the class. And, you know, I've taught it before. I feel like I was pretty confident with my teaching in there. But my professor, Professor Spinelli, was incredible. I mean, she literally had tours of everything, you know, like, oh, instead of just telling you that we have a theater program, let's actually go tour the theater and talk to the head of the theater program. Instead of uh, just mentioning that we have services for veterans, why don't we go to the Veterans Center and, you know, have have the um, head of the Veterans Center speak to the class. And so pretty much immediately I started, you know, I asked her permission, but I started to steal pretty much every activity that she would do because it was just such a different way of teaching than I was used to. I mean, it's so much more like, let's get out there and do things. Let's actually go to the gym and, you know, see the equipment in action and things like that rather than, you know, me just mentioning it. So that was a big one. Um, discussion boards, I've definitely changed the way that I, that I do discussion boards. And then also probably, I mean, it's not as, I don't know, it's not quite as exciting and thrilling, but I think it's made a, a major impact on me is that I'm, I'm much more kind of empathetic. You know, not that I, you know, just listen to a, a sad story and say, oh, you know, I'll give you an A, obviously. I would never do anything like that. But, you know, just to be able to to t sit down with a student and say, you know what, I know what you've been through. I know what you're going through. I know how difficult this is. And these are some things that help me, you know, and I can actually give them some tips, you know, just to try to encourage them to, you know, to persevere because, I mean, it's definitely doable, but, you know, our students go through a lot. What were your rules at the time around confidentiality for this project? How open or not open were you? And, and was it different with students and different with the professors who were teaching the classes you were taking? Um, I tried to, to kind of keep it on the down low as much as possible, but I, I would never, you know, like lie about it. I wouldn't, you know, say that I was something that I wasn't. So, for instance, um, you know, the first day of class, I would walk into class you know, sit down with my books and so forth. I kind of covertly look around and see if I recognized any students. I mean, we have thousands of students at Northern Essex. And so um, there's no way that I knew everyone, especially since many of the classes I was taking were classes that first year students would take. And they may not have progressed into my chemistry or forensic science classes at that point. Um, and so I would, you know, I wouldn't mention anything. If the professor recognized me, which I don't know all the uh, faculty at the college either, and then I would, you know, after class or before class, I'd kind of just mention what I was doing and that I wasn't there to check up on them. You know, I, I really just wanted to experience it as a student. And um, often the faculty were very enthusiastic and were saying, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous, but I'd 
love to hear your feedback, you know, honest feedback on what you think is working and what doesn't because they really wanted to improve their teaching. And I found that their teaching is probably better than mine. And so I, you know, improved my teaching far more than I think that they could. Mm. But then with students, if someone asked me, you know, who I was, what I was doing there, I would, you know, I would mention it. Um, sometimes I'd ask them not to, you know, advertise it too much. But in some cases, you know, I, I knew so many of the students in the classroom, like in my public speaking class, that, you know, the cat was out of the bag. And so I would just kind of embrace that. And, you know, which was kind of nice. I mean, it was interesting to see some of the, the students that I was classmates with who got to know me and then found out I was a professor and so purposely took my class the following semester, <laughs> mm. you know, just because they, they thought it was such a great idea. You talked a little bit about changing your discussion board approach. Could you share more about that? Sure. You know, I, I teach an online class and I, you know, in, in all of my classes, I, I like to have them do kind of some hot topics in science, right? So nuclear power, genetic engineering, vaccines, things like that, where I, you know, they hear about things in the media and I like them to kind of look at both sides of the issue, look at the research. And so in the past, I, it was definitely one-sided. You know, I'm a total introvert. I didn't like to talk to people. I like to just sit in the lab and do my own thing, which is ironic being a teacher. And so I kind of assumed that's how my students wanted things to be. And so for their, you know, quote unquote discussion boards, it was more like, here, post your thoughts on this issue. And that was it, right? They didn't have to really interact with each other and so forth. But going through, you know, my literature class, my English composition class, and some of the other classes, I saw how powerful a discussion board can be, a real discussion board, where the you know, students actually go out there and they, they post their thoughts on things, and then they actually get a chance to interact with each other. I really like the structure of some of the, the boards where you know, my professors would actually mention like, oh, you know, this is what a good post looks like. This is what a bad post looks like. This is something in between. This is what I expect. And so... I've tried to do that now where I, I model for each of my students, like, this is what an A paper looks like, you know, for each assignment, because, you know, sometimes you just don't know. I mean, in, in one of my classes, I had no idea what was really expected of me when I would, you know, turn in an assignment. And so it was kind of, it was very kind of frustrating to me being in academia and seeing that sometimes our expectations aren't clear. You know, and I, I'm sure I fall into the same trap where, you know, I, I make an assignment and it's totally clear to me because I created it. But my students don't always know what I expect. And sometimes they're too afraid to ask. As soon as you had agreed to do the interview with me and we, we had actually a pretty last minute approach because you were headed or should say are headed out of town. And actually, why don't you talk about that just for a minute and then I'll share the questions I got on Twitter. Um, what, where are you headed very soon? <laughs> and actually, by the time this airs, you'll already be there. Yeah, so um, I'm actually heading out to Florence, Italy to teach a study abroad course for about four weeks through uh, Northern Essex. And it's great. I mean, we have a fabulous study abroad program where students get a chance to travel all over. And so this is kind of a, a collaboration between an art history class and my science class, which is called Global Discoveries in Science. So we're talking about Galileo and da Vinci um, and recreating some of their famous experiments, building a Galileo telescope, and then taking it with us to Florence 
and, you know, actually looking up at the night sky and going and seeing his original telescope in the museum and so forth. So that's a a super exciting opportunity. (laughs) And have you ever done anything like that before? Uh, This is the first time for me. I mean, the study abroad program's been going on for a while. They go to Ecuador and Belize and England and so forth. But this is the first time that I'm actually going to be able to, you know, take take part in this. And I'm pretty excited. I mean, between the, the two classes that are going to this, it's the largest study abroad program we've had so far at NECC. Hmm. So at any, at any rate, I'm super excited about that. And and I did mention on Twitter that I was going to get a chance to talk to you today. And there were a couple of questions that came in from people on Twitter. First, it's Lisa. She wants to know what teaching methods you found most effective. Uh, let's see. So most effective teaching methods, I would say a lot of in-class collaborative work. I mean, I, I cringe to say that a little bit because <laughs> as an introvert, it was a bit like pulling teeth even now. I mean, it wasn't as bad as when I was, you know, an 18 year old college student, but even now the professor would say, I want you to turn to the person next to you and, you know, we're going to talk about this or proofread a paper or get in small groups and do something. I would still cringe just a little bit inside um, just instinctively. But honestly, um, you know, working with the other students and seeing what they're doing, seeing their writing, so forth really helped me to improve my own writing. Another thing was my public speaking professor, you know, obviously in that class, he would have us um, actually, you know, get up there and give a lot of speeches, which makes sense. And I had my students give presentations in my chemistry and forensic science classes as well, because I think that those are important skills to have. But as a professor, I am always much more hesitant about giving feedback. I try to write out notes and then give it to the student. But my professor, Dave Radigan, he would actually have the student, you know, have each of us stand up there after the, the presentation was over. And he would, you know, give us feedback. He'd have the other classmates give us feedback. And it was intimidating at first, but because he did it for every single student, and he never would give anything, you know, he would never be mean about it. But he would give the feedback and it would help everyone at the same time. It also helps that he's a stand-up comedian, so he's a (laughs) hilarious guy. And So he was great about doing that, but that's something that I I think I'm going to incorporate. Not nearly as funny, but, you know, I think just having everyone benefit from each student's individual feedback is a great idea. And then Potsy Librarian wanted to know, ironically, if you worked with or got help from an academic librarian during your time as a student. Uh, I actually did on a couple of of occasions. The librarians, I think, have an amazing job, and I'm a bit jealous, (laughs) but um, they they get to work with, you know, a lot of students. So when I was able to work with them on a couple of occasions, first was in my first-year seminar class. Um, We were given a scavenger hunt to go to, you know, the library, find some things there and so forth, just to kind of introduce us to it. And because we have multiple campuses, I decided to try to do the entire scavenger hunt at our Lawrence campus. And I was totally unaware that we actually had a full-scale library there in the basement of one of the buildings. And so I got to meet the librarian there and work closely with her, get some help on the scavenger hunt, which was great. And then for another part of the first-year seminar class, we actually toured the Haverhill um, Library met with one of the librarians there and were given some pointers on research tips 
um, how to access the journals through EBSCO and all the, the different wonderful resources, which honestly, I didn't know about all of them. And so it's, it's nice to see that students have access to so many things um, and that we have such dedicated, enthusiastic librarians that really support the students in their efforts. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like the overall experience for you just had such a supportive community, and but also we're regularly reminded of just how hard what so many of our students do is. Definitely. One of the things that I wanted to be sure and talk to you about before we move on to the recommendations segment is your love of games and puzzles and specifically how you use the, that passion of yours in the classroom to communicate chemical principles. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I'm definitely a, a geek when it comes to board games. I you know, have a couple hundred here at home and I try to use them in my class, A, because I think it wakes up the students. Um, they have a lot of fun with it and B, because I really enjoy doing it myself. And so I've used, you know, games like that. I have an escape the room type game that I use to help with kind of puzzle solving and, you know, critical thinking and lateral thinking and so forth. I have used, um, I've used a, a kid's game called rattlesnake that has a, a board with a bunch of you know, rattlesnakes on it. And then some magnets they call rattlesnake eggs. And, you know, you place it on the board and then each time you place another magnet, it starts to affect all of the other magnets as they start to twist and turn in the magnetic fields. I use that when I talk about ionic bonds and how you've got positive and negative attractive forces within the, you know, within the, the salt crystals, for instance, and how, you know, they attract each other. But if they, you know, become shifted um, by, you know, force or something, they can actually repel each other and shatter the crystal and so forth. And then probably the one that my students like the most is another kid's game called Loop and Louie, which there's actually a new version called Loop and Chewy, which has Chewbacca flying around. But <laughs> the idea is you have this, this plane flying around. This is a little mechanical um, buzz, you know, biplane buzzing around and it tries to knock the chickens off of your little towers. <laughs> so you have to hit the, the students have to hit the paddles to kind of knock the plane up into, up into the, the air to keep it from hitting their chickens. And I use that when I talk about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in my general chemistry class and how you can't know an ex, you know, electron's exact position and you know, momentum at the, the same moment as you, the more you know about one variable, the less you know about the other. And so I have them play this game and I tell them, well, what if you had your eyes closed and the only way you would know where that, that little plane is, is when you hit it with your paddle. But as soon as you hit it with your paddle, you've now changed its position. And so they, they try to tie that in and, so my students love it, and they actually love these games so much that they started their own club at the college called the Bacon Board Gamers. You can find us at baconboardgamers.com if you're in the area and want to come and hang out with us on Friday nights. But yeah, so we have about a dozen people. We get together Friday nights, um, just play board games, sometimes eat bacon, and <laughs> just have a lot of fun. <laughs> I am so curious if when you bring up the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, there's always a guaranteed Breaking Bad reference made. <laughs> there always is. In fact, I put it on my slides. You know, when we talk about Heisenberg, and I 
pop up a photo from Breaking Bad and then say, oh, wrong one. I switched to the, <laughs> the actual Eisenberg. <laughs> that is wonderful. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations. And I have one, which I was apologizing in advance, is a Mac-only one. It's called Spillo. And the non-Mac version of this is that I use a bookmarking tool called Pinboard. It's at pinboard.in. And what I love about it is that I can save information that I find around different categories of information and tag that information. A lot of times I'll tag information with the class number that it might relate to. And when I'm looking for new fresh ideas, I can just go find the class number tag and then along with certain concepts or principles or topics that I that I address in that particular class. And all of that is done on a Mac or on a PC through pinboard.in. But I found Spillo recently and Spillo is an application on your Mac that will display and manage all of your bookmarks on Pinboard. And one of the things I really had fun doing is I set up my social media posts usually just once a week and I'll spread them out throughout the week of articles that I found or videos I found that I think might be helpful to other professors. And with Spillo, I can just go and set up a smart folder and say, show me the last seven days of bookmarks that I've posted. And then I can easily just go and start posting those over to the Buffer website and get them all set up to be sharing on Twitter and different places throughout the week. So I would recommend today Spillo. And if you haven't yet checked out Pinboard, definitely get yourself a good bookmarking service. Pinboard is just one of them. Digo is another really good one too, but I've been using Pinboard for a long time and been happy with it. And what do you I have to check that out? Yeah, what do you have to recommend today? <laughs> Since I am such a big board game fan, I'll tell you about one that my students just finished with at the club. So it's called Pandemic Legacy, and the idea is it's a cooperative game. So you're actually you know on the same team. You're playing against the board itself, and so you're each a researcher or a scientist or a, a medic. You're going out and trying to fight these diseases these viruses that are spreading across the world. But the, the really crazy, um, innovative thing about it is it's a, a legacy game, which means that each time you play the game, you literally mark up the board. You rip up cards, you put stickers on the board, you write on it, and it changes it so that the next time you play that game, it's every, every decision you made in the last game actually affects your current game. And it's it's some of the best gaming moments that my students and I have had ever um, with just such a, a, a brilliant system. So I, I definitely recommend that you check out Pandemic Legacy. Oh, thank you so much. And Mike, I know you are probably packing. If you haven't started packing yet, you should have started packing yet. <laughs> busy, <laughs> getting, <yeah. laughs> busy getting ready for your trip and also, of course, spending time with your family. I just thank you so much for your time and you've completely just energized me. It's actually quite early for us here in California, but I wanted to snatch up the opportunity to talk to you before our air conditioning repair people get here and start banging on things around the house. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and really just your true an inspiration to me and I know to so many others and I really do hope that we get to continue learning from you and all of your experience in becoming a student. All right. Thank you so much, Bonnie. After Mike and I got off the phone, he said he thanked me for my time and just for not thinking he was crazy because he said some people thought he was crazy for doing this little experiment and I told him, 
oh, I think you're crazy. It's just the good kind of crazy. And truly, I just appreciate so much his sacrifice to be able to have such better empathy for his students. And I'm truly inspired by him. And also after we stopped recording, I got some great guest ideas from him too. So thanks so much to Mike for your contribution to the show and to the broader higher ed community. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have any ideas for future shows, please send a message to me. The fastest way to do that is either through Twitter at B-O-N-N-I 208 or go to teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And you can give feedback for future potential guests or topics would love to hear from you on that. And if you aren't getting an email from me once a week with the show notes, it's just a nice way to be able to not have to remember to go check the website to know that it's there. And you can subscribe to those weekly updates at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to be more engaged with the community of people who are listening to Teaching in Higher Ed, we've started a Slack channel and you can just send me an email through the feedback link and I'd be happy to add you. There's some great conversations happening there and you could be learning from the more intimate community up there if you would like to. So thanks so much for listening and I'll look forward to seeing you next time.